Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, flow, freedom, agorism, anarchy, and more. Our mission is to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. I'm your host, Mike the Polymath Whistler, coming from the Easy Peasy Shop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 36 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. You know, today I was supposed to be doing my job as a tour guide down at a distillery in southern Indiana. I, you know, I take people out on a ATV tour, it's called. It's a fun job that I tend to do on Saturdays, but... Today was a bit rainy, so we ended up canceling canceling the tour for the day, which gave me an unexpected day off. Now, typically, a Saturday of tour guiding involves a whole lot of whole lot of energy, whole lot of making jokes, and you know, trying to show people a fun time, and you know, keeping my energy up, up, up for hours at a time, which can be pretty exhausting. So, you know, I was pretty relieved actually to get this unexpected rain day and gave me a chance to slow down instead. And I decided to dive into the works of one of my favorite authors, probably my favorite author. And that would be Edward Abbey. Now, Edward Abbey is not as widely known as I feel like he ought to be. You know, he is a great American author. You know, I believe he should be sort of lumped in there with some of the greats, you know, Mark Twain and, you know, John Krakauer, Jack Kerouac. You know, these are some of my favorites personally. Um, Michael Pollan. You know, these are these are people who who really influenced folks with their words, with their writing. You know, really kind of challenged the prevailing wisdom of their day you know it makes me think of these folks that we that we used to call muck rakers now I remember learning about this in school 
the muckrakers and if you don't remember that's you know that's okay they were basically a, a group of writers and they were not you know a, a, an organized group they were they were just writers who challenged sort of the um, the powerful and this was particularly sort of during the rise of industrialization uh, where working conditions and living conditions were were really quite poor and you know overcrowding in the cities was becoming a problem and these muckrakers uh, they they came from a variety of different political views you know you had your Marxists you had your u- union types right your your leftists but you also had sort of your your anarchist and your your libertarian philosophies from other of these writers now you wouldn't necessarily categorize Edward Abbey as a muckraker in in classical terms I think the muckrakers there was kind of a generally recognized period of time and their story often involved sort of writing these stories you know like um, the jungle trying to remember the name of the author Um, but the book all about sort of the meatpacking industry in early industrialized America let's see who this um, author was Upton Sinclair Upton Sinclair that's right you know he's kind of the preeminent muckraker now muckraker that was a term that was sort of imposed upon them they did not self declare but the idea was they were sort of trying to clean the swamp right raking out the muck they were addressing corruption you know mostly against sort of they were addressing the corruption of big business powerful corporations who mistreated their workers and powerful landlords who were mistreating their tenants and things of this nature this was the muckraker era But it's that attitude, I believe, you know, whether it comes from a leftist point of view or an anarchist point of view, the attitude of standing up to the powerful and exposing the corruption and exposing the horrors that are inflicted on people and influencing things for the better by bringing that that artistic, creative expression and even a journalistic sort of attitude about it. You know, these were not necessarily all nonfiction works done by these muckrakers. Much of it was fiction, but it was still addressing very real situations and conditions and corruption. You know, they they were raking the muck. They were sort of stirring it up, right? You know, I I always loved Edward Abbey's line. It's one of his more famous quotes, but he says, human society is like a stew. If you don't stir it up every now and again, you get a layer of 
scum that floats to the top. You know, that's a pretty Edward Abbey way of saying something. Yeah, somebody once accused him, I believe it was a critic, accused him of being nasty and unconstructive. To which he... He felt that was a compliment. We'll just leave it at that. He liked being called nasty and unconstructive because he was an anarchistic thinker and he he believed that sometimes you need to break something down in order to build something better. You know, you got you got to break some eggs to make an omelet, right? Now, I thought I would kind of just read this essay to you. Because why should I try to say it better when I believe that Edward Abbey has said many things as well as anyone could ever say them. So this is a essay called Wild Horses by Edward Abbey. What words, what images, what memories best evoke the essence of the American West? There are some that come first to mind. The odor of crushed sage in hand. The fragrance of burning juniper. A mountain lion crouched on the canyon ledge. The word canyon itself. One black vulture soaring in a lazy circle above the burning hills and ice cream tinted folds of the painted desert. Red mountains like mangled iron rising beyond dunes of golden sand. Stone ruins nestled in an alcove of a cliff. The cry of the coyote, first one, then a second, then a chorus, as the full moon of color of a blood orange sinks beyond the skyline. The aroma of burning mesquite. One dust devil spinning across an alkali flat. An abandoned Model T Ford sunk fender deep in sand along a black road of the Arizona Strip. The sound at night of something bulky and fierce crashing through an elder thicket on a slope of Two Medicine Mountain in Glacier National Park, the smell of the grizzly. Red and yellow billboards along old U.S. Highway 66 warning the westbound motorists, 200 miles of desert ahead, last chance for food and water. See free reptile zoo, rich thick malts, genuine beaded Indian moccasins. A real Indian, not merely another Native American, riding a genuine pinto horse, not a shiny new pickup truck. A real old-time ranger with a smoky bear hat, mounted on a big bay, leading a string of pack mules down the switchbacks of Muley Twist into the wilderness of the water pocket fold. The smell and creak of saddle leather the pressure of stirrups under your boots, 
the feel of the reins in your hand, the clank of the turning windmill near an abandoned, broken-down corral, the smell of horse dung, the smell of horses, and your first sight at evening of a file of slick, unbraided, unclaimed, tangle-maned, broom-tailed mustangs comes off the ridge for water, old mare in the lead, the stallion at the rear, wild ones, wild horses. The romance of the wild horse haunts the American West today as much as it ever did in the past. The wild horse is is very much with us, thriving and multiplying in parts of Nevada, southeastern Oregon, southwestern Wyoming, and and the western deserts of Utah. Protected by Act of Congress since 1971, the wild mustang has only one common natural enemy, ranchers and the pet food industry. Until 1971, most wild horses ended their careers inside tin cans on supermarket shelves. Protected, I'm sorry, let me get a drink here. Protection of wild horses led to the rapid increase in their numbers. Like fruit flies, like humans, like rabbits, the Mustang is a sexy animal, a prolific and fecund beast. Given the chance, it multiplies with zest at an exponential rate. These growing numbers imposed a growing burden on the limited carrying capacity of the range. Wild horses compete not only with cattle, but with other herbivores. Deer, elk, bighorn sheep, pronghorn, antelope. Hunters and game and fish departments in the western states have been slow to perceive that wild horses might eventually threaten the food supply of game animals, as cattle already do. But the moguls of the public land's beef industry are more alert in protecting their interests. For years, cattlemen tolerated a limited number of wild horses because they saw them as a source of income, dog food, and as a replacement pool for draft animals and saddle mounts. But with congressional protection, the wild horses have become numerous enough to affect the ranchers' bank accounts. Highly agitated, uh, vocal, loud, powerful, though small in number, the beef ranchers have been demanding that the government reduce and control, at the taxpayers' expense, the wild horse herds. At the same time, public sentiment, or horse-loving sentimentality, stands firm in defense of the wild horses. Caught between, the bureaucrats of the BLM do their sneaky best, as always, to obey instructions from the beef industry while maintaining a pretense of impartiality. Inevitable conflict. Too many people demanding too many things from a finite land and a shrinking resource base. What's the conservationist answer? The health of the land and the well-being of our native wildlife come first. If, as seems obvious, the wild horses, like feral burrows, are a menace to both land and wildlife, 
we must then reduce and limit their population. I would suggest confining them within a few large desert reserves that are also well-stocked with mountain lions, grizzlies, jaguars, and wolves. At the same time, we should eliminate private cattle from our public lands, not merely reduce their numbers, but remove them entirely. They don't belong there. The public lands should be managed for three purposes only, wildlife habitat, watershed protection, and human adventure, pleasure and recreation. We don't need range cattle, but we do need a few bands of wild horses here and there, if only to preserve a beautiful tradition. They do belong. They also serve to keep alive some fundamental questions. To whom do the public lands and national forests really belong? For whose benefit should they be managed? And are human needs the only needs worthy of respect? <clears throat> you know, I share that. I know it's a, it was a little bit long. But I share that because Edward Abbey, like me, called himself an anarchist while at the same time was a massive advocate for protection of wild spaces, as am I, you know? And um, it's just wild to read his words because I actually, I, I worked in the area that he refers to. Um, let's see here. So I, I lived and worked in Capitol Reef National Park. I had an internship that had me living in the park, working on the orchards there, but I explored the entire area around. So when I read Edward Abbey, you know, he says, a real old time ranger with a smoky bear hat mounted on a big bay leading a string of pack mules down the switchbacks of Muley Twist into the wilderness of the water pocket fold. I know exactly where he's talking about, because I've been there, and I've hiked in the Muley Twist. You know, a canyon so wide, windy, it can twist a mule, is what they say. And I can almost imagine that real old time ranger in the Smokey the Bear hat because I I had friends that wore the Smokey the Bear hat and were real old time rangers. You know? And I think the Park Service in many ways does a decent job. But they could always do better. And that that doesn't even that doesn't even address the BLM or the Forest Service. You know, I think I'll talk about them later but you know it's like Edward Abbey like me was an anarchist like me believed in sort of a a, a space that we can all claim ownership of that no one can claim ownership of you know wilderness and he did more to to protect wilderness than than anybody probably through his writings, he advocated to many, 
To many people's chagrin, he had advocated for direct action in the protection of Mother Earth. And what that meant was sabotage. It meant destruction of machinery. It meant blocking roads, you know, stopping logging operations by creating a barricade of human bodies in the form of protests, you know, things of this nature. They got labeled as eco-terrorists. You know, this, this movement, while it might have happened without Edward Abbey, it certainly was accelerated by his words and his thoughts. He was an advocate of civil disobedience, direct disobedience, active disobedience even. You know, never against people, only against property in the name of defending Mother Earth. You know, it's a pretty radical thought. If you've never read any Edward Abbey, a really good place to start is the Monkey Wrench Gang. It's truly like a fun novel about a band of misfits that, that conspire to protect Mother Earth. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wild ride. It's an adventure story. It's, you know, it's raunchy. It's funny. It's, you know, exciting. It's scary. It's, you know, it's a really fun read with a pretty intense message. And that's kind of the way Edward Abbey, you know, that's the way he operated. Sometimes he wrote, you know, essays and articles that were very to the point, talking about a specific environmental issue but more often his his writing is more like prose it's more more free form you know i like his writing style because it is sort of stream of consciousness writing and he doesn't stick to the rules of english except to maintain clarity but he will he will change the way words are spelled if he wants you to sound it out a different way in his in your head and you know sort of um phonetic writing as opposed to strict spelling you know he's he is a should i say was a force of creativity a prolific writer and i pick his books up fairly regularly when I need some some fuel for my fire, right? Edward Abbey was a fiery ass motherfucker, you know. He said it like he saw it. He'd call a spade a spade. He was so far from pro- political correctness, it's not even well. I'd say it's not funny, but it is. His his jokes are often at someone's expense but it doesn't make them not funny. <laughs> and the person whose expense, you know, usually there's no harm done, right? Or they deserve it, one of the two. 
But this is a man who who was not afraid to speak in very plain terms. He did not mince words. Even when he was writing in a more poetic fashion, you know, it's, there might be some interpretation to it, but he doesn't leave it so open-ended as to as to leave the reader wondering what the hell he's talking about. You tend to know exactly what the hell he's talking about. And I just, I, I love that style. The brash, the crass, the, the rude, the raunchy, the real. You know, it's like... Let's see here. There was one other thing I wanted to read. Okay, here it is. So, this is from his essay entitled Eco Defense. It's just a. Probably, yeah, it's about the last four paragraphs. Representative government in the United States has broken down. Our legislators do not represent the public, the voters, or even those who voted for them, but rather the commercial industrial interests that finance their political campaigns and control the organs of communication, the TV, newspapers, billboards, the radio. Politics is a game for the rich only. Representative government in the United States represents money, not people. Therefore, has forfeited our allegiance and moral support. We owe it nothing but the taxation it extorts from us under threats of seizure of property, imprisonment, or in some cases already, when resisted, a violent death by gunfire. Such is the, nat- uh, such is the nature and structure of the industrial mega-machine, mega in Lewis Mumford's term, which is now attacking the American wilderness. The wilderness is our ancestral home, the primordial homeland of all living creatures, including the human, and the present final dwelling place of such noble beings as the grizzly bear, the mountain lion, the eagle, the condor, the moose, and the elk, and the pronghorned antelope. The redwood tree, the yellow pine, the bristlecone pine, and yes, why not say it, the streams, waterfalls, rivers, and the very bedrock itself of our hills, canyons, deserts, mountains. For many of us, perhaps for most of us, the wilderness is more our home than the little stucco boxes, wallboard apartments, plywood trailer houses, and cinder block condominiums in which the majority of us now confined by the poverty of an overcrowded industrial culture. And if the wilderness is our true home, and if it is threatened with invasion, pillage, and destruction, as it certainly is, then we have the right to defend that home, as we would our private quarters or whatever or by whatever means are necessary. An Englishman's home is his castle. The American's home is his favorite forest, river, fishing stream, her favorite mountain or desert, his favorite swamp or woods or lake. We have the right to resist, and we have the obligation. Not to defend that which we love would be dishonorable. 
the majority of the American people have demonstrated on every possible occasion that they support the ideal of wilderness preservation. Even our politicians are forced by popular opinion to pretend to support the idea. As they have learned, a vote against wilderness is a vote against their own re-election. We are justified, then, in defending our homes, our private home, and our public home, not only by common law and common morality, but also by common belief. We are the majority. They, the powerful, are in the minority. How best defend our homes? Well, that is a matter of strategy, tactics, and technique, which eco-defense is all about. What is eco-defense? Eco-defense means fighting back. Eco-defense means sabotage. Eco-defense is risky, but sporting. Unauthorized, but fun. Illegal, but ethically imperative. Next time you enter a public forest scheduled for a chainsaw massacre by some timber corporation and its flunkies in the U.S. Forest Service, carry a hammer and a few pounds of 60-penny nails in your krill, saddlebag or game bag, backpack or picnic basket. Spike those trees. You won't hurt them. They'll be grateful for the protection, as you may save the forest. Loggers hate nails. My Aunt Emma, back in West Virginia, has been enjoying this pleasant exercise for years. She swears by it. It's good for the trees, it's good for the woods, and it's good for the human soul. Spread the word. So what he's referring to there about the 16 penny nails is it's called tree spiking. And it's a form of direct action that has been taken by environmentalists to hinder logging operations, right? They will basically put these long spikes, these nails, into the into the tree. And it doesn't do anything to hurt the tree, but what it does is it it destroys chainsaws and it destroys, you know, saw blades at the at the mill, very expensive pieces of equipment. So what would often happen is people would randomly spike trees in an area that was slated for clear cutting. This was back when clear cutting was still going on, right? Still does happen in, in places, but we've we've gotten a bit better about it. Anyways, they would they would spike these areas. Not every tree, but maybe every fiftieth or every hundredth tree. And the idea being, they would then call and announce what they had done to the logging company, to the Forest Service. That way, no loggers were injured, and the opportunity to log the area was simply denied. You know, do they have the right to do that? You know, I would argue that our public lands as Edward Abbey said, should be nothing, you know, they should be for nothing other than sort of the, the maintenance of habitat for wildlife, the protection of our watersheds, and access for us to recreate and, and have leisure and enjoy the spaces, right? He said the uh, opportunity for adventure. 
this is what wilderness is meant to be. You know, this whole thing of uh, resource extraction from public lands managed by the by the U.S. government, sort of at the taxpayer's expense, and the only people that benefit are the are the industry people who are who are selling off our shared resources. You know, we don't get anything from that. That that is not a system in which you know it's like we we were guaranteed in the constitution that if if our property was taken away there would be there would be um what's the word compensation this is the the legal argument for eminent domain that if if any property is taken by the government there must be compensation who's to say that doesn't apply to resource extraction, to the logging of our public lands. Why are we not compensated for that? You know, frankly, the argument that we could we couldn't make do without these timber resources. I disagree. I think what would happen, what would make sense. This, you know, this is something I've given quite a bit of thought to, which is why I really I really appreciate Edward Abbey is he like I said was an anarchist who believed in public lands and this is something that I've contended with sort of what would my ideal public land management protocol be well let's say starting from where we are today we have the national parks we have the National Forest Service we have the Bureau of Land Management. There are other sort of sub-organizations, Fish and Game, this and that. But those are sort of your three big land managers, all under the umbrella of the Department of the Interior, right? To me, the national parks are fantastic. They should be preserved. They should That system doesn't need to change a whole lot. I would prefer it become decentralized, but we'll set that on the back burner for now. But the the National Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, okay? These organizations manage huge, huge quantities of land. And they're their supposed mandate is one of quote-unquote multi-use which means both resource extraction as well as sort of opportunities for recreation as well as preservation of wilderness and wildlife habitat that's a very difficult mandate to do all three especially when you're charged with managing spaces that are just so big it boggles the mind for most Easterners, shall we say. If you've never been to the Western states, you almost cannot appreciate the scale, the openness, the vastness, the wildness of it. And much of this land is basically being hoarded by our government. It's, you know, they call it public land, but the truth is, the public doesn't have much say in the matter. You know, it's it's 
very much a system that has been has been favorable to the timber industry and the mining industry and generally speaking these these management agencies bend to the will of the industry right and it's just it seems so fucked up to me that our government is in the business of of selling off resources you know i think we need to leave that in the hands of private private land owners you know the person who has the most to lose by over over logging or overgrazing is the person who owns the land and if they overgraze or they overlog they suffer the consequences but when you when you take the ownership out of the equation and instead of the the cattle farmer own, owning the land or the logger owning the ran, the land everybody owns the land so therefore nobody does you know it's the classic it's the tragedy of the commons so i've always had this this beef where i just don't understand how sort of a multi-use mandate even makes sense you know i think either we manage it as wilderness or it needs to be private right i think public land that is used in any way for profit making is inherently flawed you know you take the cattle the cattle uh, ranchers out west you know this was one of edward abbey's biggest enemies were the were the ranchers and it's because he recognized that they were getting a free ride you know they're getting access to land that was paid for by the rest of us and they don't have to incur the costs of their of their actions, right? It's the tragedy of the commons. There's a reason if you don't know the history there, like it was about grazing sheep on Boston commons. It's always about grazing because people are foolish and we think we can squeeze more out than what mother nature is willing to give. We don't see it at first. It just gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse every year until it's so bad that we cannot fix it. You know, Edward Abbey, he loved the desert southwest for good reason. It is one of the last open places on earth. And it's really a fine line. You know, trying to protect something while also exploiting it. I don't believe that's possible. You know, the desert landscape is not very valuable for commercial purposes. Yes, there's trees. Yes, there's minerals. Yes, there's petroleum. But overall, the landscape is not productive for, for human endeavors. There's not much water. The truth is it provides more as wilderness than it ever could as civilization. So, you know, this issue of sort of public land protection and how does that jive with an anarchistic 
world view? How would it work in a system of anarchy? I believe that in essence, the areas that are wilderness would remain wilderness because people because people want to be able to go there. And therefore, people would move there and live in the wilderness and protect the wilderness as if it was their own home. You know, perhaps it shouldn't be illegal to live permanently on public land so long as you're not altering the ecosystem. You know, there was once a time where you could just just walk and find a place and stay there a while and live amongst the creatures and in the system, in the ecology. But many, many rules are being placed on us that make that literally illegal. You know, most parks have a limit in the number of nights you can stay. So these issues to me are so connected with with all other issues of liberty versus tyranny. You know, because we've given our government the power to manage the, these lands instead of fulfilling our obligation to manage and protect them ourselves. We we find ourselves in this situation <coughs> where exploitation and degradation are the norm. What we need is to ask the question of how can we manage public lands where there is no no degradation, no exploitation, no profit incentive, only wilderness, wildlife, and us. Now, these are pretty big, complicated kind of issues, you know, and I don't, I don't claim to know what's best. You know, and frankly, that's why I just don't think it's right that folks in Washington, D.C. can claim to know what's best for what's happening in, you know, Capitol Reef National Park, for instance. And I don't, I don't, I don't appreciate, you know, I think it all comes down to a question of power, right? And the fact that we have so little power, if any at all, over the way our public lands are managed. You know, particularly the ones that you live near or within, right? It's it's kind of a, a radical notion to think that perhaps parks could be truly owned by the people and it might sound insane but say there was a way that people could have a direct 
vote when it came to management decisions, you know, within their ecology, within their ecosphere. And perhaps you earn the right to participate in that kind of vote by, you know, it's like, perhaps we need to take things regionally and I don't like the idea of sort of like tracing or anything like that, but I almost think it would be an interesting notion to say that anybody that visits a place on a regular basis could have a vote. You know, again, this is radical stuff, but if, if we're gonna if we're gonna play by the game of this is our land, you know, this land is your land, this land is my land. Renault, you know, like while also respecting and understanding um, the need for private property rights, right? Where's the where's the line in the sand there? This is a very tricky question because we can all recognize the benefit of setting something aside and saying no one can touch it. You know. We can go there, we can be there, we can exist there, but we cannot, we cannot trammel on it, right? Untrammeled wilderness. We need that. That is a benefit to all. And we need to protect our watersheds and we need to protect our wildlife. And we do need to use the resources of this planet. I'm not against logging and I'm not against ranching, but I am against it on land that belongs to me because I didn't consent to that, you know? As far as I'm concerned, the only thing that they could do that would that would be right, so to say, is to either make that land truly public and protected and cease all extraction or they sell it off so it becomes private land and that those private landowners are then responsible for managing it themselves you know with the with the knowledge that we have now of sustainable logging it is in the best interest of these companies to to be selective and to be sustainable with their logging practices in the long run and i know that doesn't always happen but my Optimism is in the fact that we are improving and becoming ever more efficient. People are greedy. People are stupid. People make mistakes. And sometimes you need to allow them to. Now this issue of, of public land is a big one because there is a lot of tension at the core of it. And a lot of that tension is because of the sort of mental gymnastics of of defining what should be public what should be private and how we manage those public lands for the sake of getting the sort of the valuable stuff out of it i know i'm just talking in circles here but it's because it's it's tricky <clears throat> but in general, sort of letting 
the people who live in an area dictate how an area is managed seems more reasonable to me. I do not like that being the job of the federal government. I'd like to see a lot of different systems experimented with and tried out different logging practices and different management structures and different forms of public land instead of just these very limited versions that we have now. So before I risk going on and on, as I kind of already have, I'm coming up on an hour here, but if you're still listening, I've got one more excerpt. And this is from the essay, The Theory of Anarchy. Once again, Edward Abbey. Government is a social machine whose function is coercion through monopoly of power. Any good Marxist understands this. Like a bulldozer, government serves the caprice of any man or group who succeeds in seizing the controls. The purpose of anarchism is to dismantle such institutions and to prevent their reconstruction. 10,000 years of human history demonstrate that our freedoms cannot be entrusted to those ambitious few who are drawn to power. We must learn, again, to govern ourselves. Anarchism does not mean no rule. It means no rulers. Difficult but not utopian. Anarchy means and requires self-rule, self-discipline, probity, character. At present, life in America is far better than the majority in most or <clears throat> excuse me. At present, life in America is far better for the majority than in most other nations. But that fact does not excuse our failings. Judged by its resources, intentions, and potential, the great American experiment appears to me as a failure. We have not become the society of independent freeholders that Jefferson envisioned, nor have we evolved into a true, a true democracy, government by the people, as Lincoln imagined. Instead, we see the realization of the scheme devised by Madison and Hamilton, a strong centralized state which promotes and protects the accumulation of private wealth on the part of a few, while reducing the majority to the role of dependent employees of the state and industry. We are a nation of helots, returned, or I'm sorry, ruled by the oligarchy of techno-military industrial administrators. Never before in history have slaves been so well-fed, thoroughly medicated, lavishly entertained. But we are slaves nonetheless. Our debased popular culture, television, rock music, home video, processed food, mechanical recreation, wallboard architecture, is the culture of slaves. Furthermore, the whole grandiose structure is self-destructive. By enshrining the profit motive as our guiding ideal, we encourage the intensive and accelerating consumption of land, air, water, the natural world, on which the structure depends for its continued existence. A house built on greed will not long endure. Whether it's called capitalism or socialism makes little difference. Both of these oligarchic, militaristic, expansionist, 
acquisitive, industrializing, and technocratic systems are driven by the same motives. Both are self-destroying. Even without the accident of nuclear war, I predict that the military-industrial state will disappear from the surface of the earth within a century. That belief is the basis of my inherent optimism, the source of my hope for the coming restoration of a higher civilization. Scattered human populations, modest in number, that live by fishing, hunting, food gathering, small-scale farming, and ranching, that gather once a year in the ruins of abandoned cities for great festivals of moral, spiritual, artistic, and intellectual renewal, a people for whom the wilderness is not a playground, but their natural, native home. New dynasties will arise. New tyrants will appear, no doubt. But we must and we can resist such recurrent aberrations by keeping true to the earth and remaining loyal to our basic animal nature. Humans were free before the word freedom became necessary. Slavery is a cultural invention. Liberty is life. Eros plus anarchos equals bios. Long live democracy. Two cheers for anarchy. So, again, like, why should I even try to say it when Edward Abbey said it better than I ever could? You know, he's making such good case for the idea that you don't need government to have governance that that regional power needs to be taken back that we were intended on being a nation of independent free people with the ability to gain and purchase property. You know, this is this is critical and yet he's he's also pointing out that we as humans on planet Earth, you know, first and foremost our home is wilderness. And that in his image that he lays out for this return how did he explain it? The restoration of a higher civilization. A higher civilization. But he says that we would be restoring it. I mean, that's... That's a thought. We've lived this way in the past. The wilderness was our home in the past. I believe public lands should be public. And I believe that people have every right to live on the public land. You know, how that works and what it looks like, I'm not sure. But I I hope that we can that we can try that we can try different things in different places and I hope that we can take the power back 
This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again. <laughs>